Hello, I'm Matthew Quiver, and welcome to this Jericho Chambers Go Ahead Group podcast about radicalising regulatory thinking. Well, it's hard to recall a time when regulation has been more in the spotlight. Recent failures, like the demise of Carillion and the debacle at the East Coast Rail Mainline, have led many to demand, where were the regulators? Who was asleep on the job? We need new rules and regulations to stop this occurring again. But regulation is a subject that used to be regarded as a cerebral, even arid area of concern for policy wonks and fans of the close study of hundreds of pages of finely drawn rules. But much has changed in the last few years. Whoever encountered the phrase regulatory equivalence before Brexit, but regulation is now front and centre with David Davies recently insisting that the government will maintain its regulatory track record of high standards outside of the EU and had no plans to engage in a new Mad Max-style race to the bottom. So, is our regulatory system fit for purpose? What is to be done when regulation becomes a dead hand that stifles innovation brought about by new technology, which would be of benefit to consumers? These are some of the questions we sought to answer in our recent roundtable, and here are the thoughts of some of its participants. First up, Christine Armstrong, co-founder of Jericho Chambers. So Christine, what is a regulator there for? Is it, is it there as the democratic voters' friend, guide, policeman? How do you see it? So what I thought was really clear this morning was this fundamental contradiction between the fact that regulation is slow, it's difficult, it takes time to enact, and then it takes lots and lots of time to change. And we're operating in a world where things are changing very, very quickly. And there's a fundamental tension between these two forces. And essentially what we're ending up with is an impasse where we're having new arrivers, new people with new ideas and technology appearing on the scene who, to the established players, appear to be entirely unregulated and, and behaving in a way which may or may not be in the public interest. We also have this fundamental imbalance between the power of some of the organisations who are driving this innovation and their resources, their wealth, their power, their, the talent that they're able to attract and much of the public sector uh, which has been diminished over recent years because of austerity and doesn't necessarily have the uh, resources or the power to um, negotiate on equal terms with those other sides. It is interesting, has, isn't it, how regulation can almost become a hygiene factor for business. It it just gets sort of accepted. And we talked about this the other day when we were talking about governance. So much of the whole governance debate now is things that, that, you know, sort of right thinking, you know, nice people were advocating the way businesses should behave. And that's now the way in which they do behave, corporate social responsibility being one of those, the acceptance that, you know, that 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 businesses function you know within a society and therefore you know you know have got to act as citizens of that society in the same way as you or I do when we walk down the street so it does seem to me that the problem with regulation can often be that as the guy from the Adam Smith Institute 
hinted, it, 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 it kind of gets into the wrong sorts of things and fetishises little details that actually sort of don't matter and they miss a bigger picture, don't they? For me, this all comes down to, you know, I think what the army calls commander's intent, which is that we have an intention through regulation that we get, which we forget and we get lost in the details and we forget what we're actually trying to achieve. And surely with Uber, what we're trying to achieve is for employees to be treated well, people to have access to efficient, affordable journeys, you know, across the city in which they live and for drivers to be treated decently and for it all to work well together that's the intention how we regulate that I think often gets down to the detail and the specifics which can then be abused manipulated ignored and isn't always helpful Mm. and so lifting that conversation back to what is the intention what is the purpose that we are trying to achieve by this is essential and I'm afraid that that's often what seems to get lost in the discussion next David Brown the CEO of Go Ahead Group One thing I wanted to ask you, you're in a very unusual position. You've worked in the private sector and you've worked in the public sector. What if you became the regulator tomorrow? So there was this government-created transport regulator that was allowed, he was allowed to kind of range across the piece of all the various transport modes in the country. And you could start putting some rules in place about what you would want. I think one of the things... I would be thinking about is how the world is changing and how you've got to be very careful about what you want to put in because it may not last and I would not want to find myself in a position where I replicate the um, uh, the sins of my fathers by putting in regulation which doesn't keep up to date and is out of out of place and, and I think there is there is some good stuff that Transport for London is looking at at the moment whereby they're actually saying we don't really know what's going to happen We'll put in a code of practice, we'll work it through in a short term, and then we will try to try to discover what the outcome of that. And I think that's quite a grown-up view to take, and I think that's quite impressive. In, in a broader sense of actually what would you do, I'd, it would be the coordination of different modes and some rationalisation of how that works. But in terms of the disruptors that are coming into the, into the transport network, I think I'd be saying, OK, you can come in, but there are a set of there is a set of rules. There is a there is a level playing field that I want you to work to, and there are things that I'm expecting from you. And they may be the obvious, what we what we've been calling this morning horizontal type guidelines about safety and issues. But there will be other things where I'll say I actually want you to share my data. I actually want you to do um, if it's a, if it's any use use of traction ability. I want them to be of a uh, maybe electrical or certainly non-diesel. Or if it's diesel, it's got to be a certain type of diesel. So I'd set some rules around that. Why is it then, in all the discussion and the you know the heated political discussion we've had about potential nationalisation of transport, it's always talking about the railways. The, the, you know, the policy is going to be that, oh, you know, it will be better for everyone if the railways are nationalised. I, I don't even know what Labour's policy on buses is. Do they want to nationalise those as well? Uh, in essence, yes, they want to allow franchising to take place at uh, local authority level. So they want to replicate the London scenario outside, in, out, outside of London. And that is also wrong. I mean, like, the London scenario works because it's London. London is a world city. It's got a level of congestion that doesn't even compare with anything outside in, 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 in uh, regional cities. 
and it is and it is unique from that point of view and it needed some re- level of regulation it's still been privatized and people act as contractors for the network the, 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 under the all species of transport for london but it is chalk and cheese it is a very different environment than outside it's got a massively growing population that's being fed by a growing bus network although at the moment actually it's causing a bit of a problem because actually the bus network is declining because congestion is driving some of the passengers away from from the buses so it doesn't so that is a proof in itself that regulation isn't a, an, all, an all singing all panacea for how do you actually um, create more demand but outside of London it's a very different scenario again my view is that you cannot replicate little mini Londons a- across the outside um, outside of London because th- there's just not the same scope of, of um, demand in some of these places they don't have the same level of congestion and one of the things that I would challenge every local authority that wants to do it is where are you going to get the capital to invest from at this moment in time, I carry on investing in buses outside of London because that's what will drive passenger demand. And the capital for that comes from the profits I make from the, from the network. Where are we going to replicate those profits outside of London in a franchise world? Harry Armstrong is the head of technology futures at Nesta. Now, one of the things you're interested in Harry is in looking forwards, isn't it? You're look, you, what you've been doing in some of your research is not looking at the way things are at the moment, but how they might be, and new technologies that, that, that are coming in, and even sort of thinking about how one might sort of design regulation for things that are yet to have occur. Now, how do you go about that? Well, we're starting to see the emergence of new methods. Regulators are trying out new ways of doing this. So you can look at the FCA sandbox as a great example of that. They're trying to renegotiate their relationship with innovators and, and tech um, you know, creators. Um, you can also see in, in the development of a number of autonomous vehicle test beds around the world, uh, both in the UK, examples in Greenwich, Milton Keynes, etc., but also around the world in, in places like Singapore. The same kind of things are starting to happen they're starting to look at this technology that's not yet ready but is starting to be deployed in various ways on city streets testing out what that means for people what that means for regulation um, what that could look like in terms of actually that deployment in the future what happens when companies specifically big tech companies their global natures make them larger than governments. You know, an organisation like Google now is massive and we look at what they're doing in Toronto where they're effectively helping the design of where a city is going to look in the future. Does that give them too much control? It gives them a huge amount of power and I think there is a huge amount of power asymmetry not only between people and companies but as you say between countries and companies now. Um, this can be managed. I think if you look at a lot of the discussions around Europe where you have collections of companies, of countries working together, you can push back on that. Um, but in terms of regulation, um, the global nature of these companies and the kind of industries that they work in data and AI again makes regulation very difficult. Um, and if you are looking to be a kind of world leader in the innovation of, of those technologies, it does put pressure on um, what regulation you should create or what that regulatory system should be and how you work with other countries to develop that. And these are some of the really big issues that I think we're starting to come up against. Katie Taylor is Group Commercial and Customer Director at Go Ahead Group. 
And what we're asking everyone, Katie, is if they could be a regulator in a particular sector tomorrow, you could choose your job across the piece and you'd be this all-powerful individual able to write a new series of rules and regulations. Which, which sector would you choose? You've worked across mm -hmm. several sectors during your career. And what sorts of things would you do to kind of make things better within that sector? So I've worked across financial services and professional services and then obviously transport. Um, and I think a lot of financial services regulation has, has been for the betterment actually, has, has led to some real changes. Um, but I think one of the things raised today was the fact that uh, culture and culture around risk taking and compliance is so much more important actually than the regulations themselves. Um, and often what happens is when you regulate, you take away control from people and you, you put the impetus on people working around the regulations rather than actually deciding what is the right thing to do. And regulation really should just be about ensuring that people add checks and balances to make sure people do behave in the right way that is for the betterment of everyone and not just for their own personal good. Um, and making sure regulation works in that way rather than just taking responsibility away from people and allowing people to behave um, however they want. Financial services is particularly interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, they brought the world to within an inch of disaster in 2007, 2008. And the sceptics would say, well, they've responded to that by hiring hundreds of compliance mm -hmm. lawyers who are very good at kind of box ticking. But if you talk to businesses, small and medium-sized businesses within the UK, the bank still won't lend them money. So the kind of... it. It seemed that they, they kind of gamed it in a way. They were able just to sort of do a sidestep and carry on behaving as they were before. I mean, do you think that's a justified criticism of them? Well, I think it didn't address the behaviours. I think, again, it was adding regulation rather than actually looking at the culture of those um, organisations and, and how they operate. And I think this goes back to a point about regulation is that it doesn't always um, account for what the people, the general public, actually want out of it. So your point about um, small businesses and um, individuals not being able to borrow money and it not working for their benefit, the regulations weren't actually brought in to help those people. The regulations were brought in by the government looking at what the government wanted to gain control of. And that's not what regulation should be about. It should be about understanding what is it that the people, the customers, that the general public are or not getting out of a particular sector or company or services, and then how do you regulate to help manage that marketplace for their betterment? And I think often that's the case that, that regulators don't really fully understand what it is that, that people want out of the regulation and what a fair marketplace looks like for them, and then regulate accordingly. I mean, that's a fair question, isn't it? Because who are regulators there for, really? I mean, they tend to be appointed by government mm -hmm. to sort of look after stuff that is maybe a bit technical that government doesn't want to do itself but therefore they are there for the people's benefit aren't they and um do you think some do you think they always remember that uh, i don't think they remember that i think it's um direction that they're set by the government sometimes means that they feel more um closer to the government and doing the government's bidding perhaps rather than actually understanding what the general public want and, and my feeling as well is that big companies and lobby groups and, and, and people at very diverse ends of the spectrum with sort of very strong views tend to dominate the conversation and often move the regulation in a way that perhaps the middle ground where actually a majority of the general public would sit gets ignored and so you end up with something very strong or very weak perhaps or with some sort of odd clauses within it that actually most people don't want but those sort of edge cases are the ones that have spoken the loudest um, and they've managed to persuade the regulator for their way.
Michael Hurwitz is the Director of Transport Innovation at Transport for London. Now, Michael, you've got a fascinating job at TFL because you're in charge of innovation and technology, new things, allowing methods of moving individuals around a city to come in, but work within the existing regulatory framework. So is that a sort of tension between those two factors that mean your job's quite a kind of a tricky one? That's right. The key challenge in the role is trying to find that common ground between the objectives of a startup, of a commercial enterprise that's determined to grow and bring a new and potentially exciting product to market with the role of, of the city governance, whose fundamental role is to ensure it's an inclusive, open transport network that works for everybody. And the tension is trying to find that common ground where uh, you don't trade off those objectives with each other and you're trying to find a place where you can take new innovation but also serves the public good. Let's talk about something quite specific, the demand-led services. Now, we've recently heard that Ford with Chariot are going to come into the market offering largely kind of late-night services on smaller sort of minibus-style vehicles between specific areas. Why, why have you permitted something like that to happen? Ford have, uh, through their uh, fully-owned company called Chariot, uh, have applied and, and been granted uh, to run four, essentially, minibus services. Uh, what we uh, do in that process is through uh, something called the London Service Permit. But as with many of these areas, the regulations for this were written many years ago and were not necessarily designed for this purpose. And so we take two key principles here. So the first is actually to engage with the market. What you don't want to do is put your head in the sand. You engage with those companies. So uh, as we would with any applicant, we discussed with them about you know, where we think the challenges are for London, for the network, what the Mayor's Transport Strategy says. They uh, came up with proposals that they believe meet that. Uh, and we have a process of consulting with the stakeholders, with the boroughs, to, to see whether there's actually meeting a transport need here. The first principle there is to engage, but the second principle is, well, look, this is new and this is evolving. So what you see we've done with the four ones that we've granted is to say, look, we're going to do this on a temporary basis. We are going to, at that same time, uh, discuss with Chariot about if we can share data about what this means, what this means to the network. Is it actually genuinely offering uh, a benefit uh, to the public, to them as an organisation? But at the same time, we are going to review the guidance that we have, the London Service Permit, which was designed in an era before app-based booking uh, using algorithms for intelligent routing was made. And we're going to see, do we need to actually uh, look at reforming that regulation to bring it up to speed? But the key point is, do on a temporary basis, provide yourself some space to learn and fundamentally engage with the innovators to see if you can come up with a, a way that works both for them but fundamentally is right for London. Simon Craven is a special advisor to Go Ahead Group. Now, Simon, you're interesting because you've worked across several different sectors, haven't you? You know a lot about transport, but you worked previously with BT, so you're familiar with the whole telecoms area. You've worked within heavily regulated industries for many years. What, what's that taught you about the difficulties that private companies can have working within the rules, keeping honest, and yet being innovative and coming up with good entrepreneurial ideas? I've seen a lot of very good 
mutually constructive relationships between uh, regulators and regulated companies, and I've seen some really bad and destructive ones. And one of the things I've, I've learned is that I think it's like a marriage. It doesn't mean that you're not having arguments. It means that you're having important arguments that you need to have and finding ways of, of building things together, the things that you need to, to build. I think it's also true to say that I think the best examples of regulation are the ones that are the most broadly based, the ones that, that really underpin all of society, like weights and measures, health and safety, criminal law. And some of the dodgiest and flakiest are the ones where you have a particularly narrow scope of regulation on a particularly specialised industry. And sometimes when people get into those... Uh, those very deep and abstruse regulatory relationships, you get regulatory capture, and you end up with an unhealthy relationship where, where each party is really working for its relationship with the other rather than for what they're doing for society. You mean as a it's whole. become like a power struggle between them, and they've forgotten who is supposed to be the beneficiary? Yeah, I think they become, it's possible for a regulator and a regulated industry to become mutually fascinated to an unhealthy degree. I think one of the nice things about Ofcom, uh, as an example, is that Ofcom from the start was broader than Oftel, which it replaced, and has really consciously reinvented itself about every 10 years. It's, it's added functions, it's discarded some functions and moved them on. But it seems to me that it's, it's a good example of a regulator that stayed relevant, and you, you can always argue with and for and against aspects of what it does, but it tries very hard to manage its boundaries in a way that keeps it at the focus of what's important for the public. Stephen Joseph is the CEO of the Campaign for Better Transport. Now, if we look at the most high-profile transport story of the last couple of weeks, it's been what's happened at the East Coast mainline. Do you think that is an example of the failure of transport policy and regulation, or it actually showing it does work? In the narrow scheme of things, um, the, the system sort of worked because it took the franchise off Stagecoach and Virgin when they failed. Um, in the big scheme of things, um, it's a failure of transport policy because what you actually want is um, high-quality rail services on the East Coast Main Line at affordable fares. And the system isn't geared up to generate that. And not just on the East Coast Main Line, but as part of a national network. The system isn't geared up for that. And I think what lies behind the arguments for nationalisation is a sense of fragmentation. Because a national network implies something that is more joined up. Mm. It implies that competing organisations and competing modes of transport, which might get a finger waved at them by monopolies people, would work together more coherently. Is that what you're getting at there? Yes. Uh, I think that the... Um, that the competition law tends to um, only regulate individual links and networks as opposed to networks. If you talk to ordinary people out there, they really quite like the TfL model. In fact, if you go around the country, people go, they don't really know what it is, but they'd really like the Oyster Card. They'd like something like the Oyster Card. And what they mean by that is simple door-to-door um, ability to, to, to get door-to-door on a single card or even contactless and not worry about whether they've got the right ticket for the right bus um, or, or train. And um, uh, the TfL system delivers that. Uh, and increasingly, with new technology, that's even more the case because behind all the phrases like mobility as a service and big data and Internet of Things lies the idea that you'll be able to come out of your house 
find out what the best t- way of getting to your destination is and get it and somebody will you know with a, a guaranteed maximum uh, fare and uh, you know it will be sorted out by somebody else sure. do you think what this is one of the reasons why the corbyn nationalization outlook is getting a lot of traction at the moment people are thinking that that's going to give them all everything that they want the, I, I think if you look at the polling that's been done publicly and privately that behind the the nationalization support is a sense of fragmentation in, in the rail network of different people doing different things you know, for their own benefit without looking at how they join up uh, and the, the fares you know that being getting on the wrong train with the wrong tickets uh, all of those things drive a feeling that it's out of control and um, I think that's the challenge for the transport industry is to come back from that and say where what what's the offer that, that can um, solve the problem that people are identifying um, and that isn't about nationalization they've got you know, it's the uh, it's for the industry to come back with that and I think that does mean much uh, different regulations so the concept of anticipatory regulation when you look ahead that feels like a good thing to do but if that doesn't work if the industry can't persuade government to go in that direction then uh, we may end up with a form of nationalization by default and finally tony travers the director of the institute of public affairs at the london school of economics now one of the interesting things that you brought up was planning and the need that we have in this country for more housing. It's probably one of the most critical things we face at the moment. But everywhere we look, the system and the rules, the regulations we have now, they're gamed, aren't they? And we don't get the outcomes that we want, which is more housing. So you become the national planning officer tomorrow. What would you do about something like that? Well, I mean, it's, it, it's, it, you're absolutely right. The, the, uh, the planning system is a form of regulation which the public really understands. It not only understands, it knows how to use it, and indeed, as you say, to game it to its own advantage. And that is an enormous constraint, and it gives particularly existing landowners enormous advantage over potential ones, and that's why we get so little housing. So, uh, in a sense, I think it's not so much the system in planning that needs to change as politicians' operation of it and their willingness to override vested interests which use the planning system, which tells us something else about regulatory systems, that they can be used in different ways by politicians and indeed by the public. So that would be my lesson from the planning system. But actually the regulatory, uh, more broadly, I'm in favour of the public understanding more about regulation, aiming off of the criticism of the way they use the planning system, because I do think at the moment a lot of regulation goes on purely because of discussions between so-called experts and politicians rather than being embedded in what the public wants of regulation. How much health and safety regulation does the public want? I think, despite all the stuff about you know bonfires of red tape, in the end people do not want to eat pork pies uh, that are not healthy, healthy and safe. And in the end there's a, there's a debate to be had there which the public could join in a bit more in fact. And what do you think the future is in terms of regulating the Googles and Facebooks? Because in Europe we see some kind of pushback against them from Brussels, which isn't necessarily mirrored here. We get rewarded by 10,000 new Apple jobs in in Battersea. How's that all going to play out? Well, it is interesting that the European Union uh, and the European Commission are just about big enough 
as is the US government should it choose to, as would the Chinese government be increasingly, to Im imaginably have a role in the regulation of some of these new, particularly tech companies. Now, China's kind of out of this. It has its own sort of system. Uh, the US is the home of many of them, complicated. Now, the European Union, EU and the European Commission have a role there, but of course, from the UK's point of view, uh, I'll put it as delicately as I can, um, our relationship with that potential regulatory role is going through change. Indeed, it's going through profound change and few will currently bet on the outcomes, which are very uncertain. Where will we end up? Will there be a bonfire of red tape, with the UK transformed into the Singapore of Europe? Only time will tell. I'm Matthew Gwyver. Thanks for listening.